to say I appreciate the, the serious intensity that the music brings um, and during this sermon series. Um, and one of these days, we will get all the gremlins worked out, and we'll have a countdown video again, but I am thoroughly convinced that once we get all of the gremlins worked out of technology, that it will be a sign that Jesus is coming back. So We're in week three of four of this series that we're calling Bad Religion. As we examine um, what Scripture says about what happens when, when good religion goes bad. And for us, when, when Christianity goes bad. What happens when, when we get off base? What happens when we start adding all of this non-biblical and extra-biblical stuff to our faith? Uh, the, the first week, we uh, looked at, we looked at the, the prophet Amos. And we looked at and, and how the fact that our faith is not a performance, that God doesn't care how many checkboxes we check off, how, how faithful we are in, in following the jot and the tittle of worship, but that if our hearts are not in the right place, none of the rest of it matters. Not only does none of the rest of it matter, but God doesn't even want it. That he's turned off to it, that he's disgusted by it. Last week, we looked at uh, Jeremiah's uh, sort of prophesying against what we can call the court prophets. Those prophets that were there in the court just to tell everybody what they wanted to hear, to tell everybody that everything was okay, don't worry about it. You, O Judah, are so much better than all of those people out there because you're not them and they're not you. And we learned that sometimes the message from God is hard and it's hard to hear, but that we still need to hear it. And so this week, having spent the last two weeks looking at the prophets, this week we turn to the New Testament. And in fact, we are going to be turning to the Gospel of Luke and to this story about Jesus encountering the religious leaders of his day. And just as the Old Testament prophets uh, showed us that these, these issues of bad religion weren't unique uh, in, 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 to us, that they were present in their day, so the story of Jesus shows us that, that Jesus had to deal with bad religion too. And so we are in the book of Luke. We're going to be in the 11th chapter. And we're going to start with the 37th verse. Luke 11, chapter 37. I'd encourage you to, to turn along with me. And, and I just also want to let you know, while we've pulled up the hymnals and the, and the Bibles, and we'll have a conversation soon about them starting to come back out into the pews, um, if only I had someone in my life who knew how to handle books that might have been touched by someone with COVID. Um, but I do want to remind you that we have copies of God's Word here for you. So if you need a copy of God's Word to take home with you, to have your very own, we have these black hardcover Bibles up here in the front, and I'd encourage you after the service, or right now, to come and grab one if you need it, and let that be our gift to you. We're in Luke chapter 11, verse 37. Will you stand with me as we read God's Word together? As he, Jesus, was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw this, he was amazed that he did not first perform the ritual washing before dinner. 
But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and evil. Fools! Didn't he who made the outside make the inside too? But give from what is within to the poor, and then everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees! You give a tenth of mint, rue, and every kind of herb, and you bypass justice and love for God. These things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees! You love the front seat in the synagogues and and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you! You are like unmarked graves. The people who walk over them don't know it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us too. Then he, Jesus, said, Woe also to you, experts in the law. You load people with burdens that are hard to carry, and yet you yourselves don't touch these burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you. You build tombs for the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Therefore you are witnesses that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their monuments. Because of this, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, so that this generation may be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets said since the foundation of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between altar and sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible. Woe to you, experts in the law. You have taken away the key to knowledge. You didn't go in yourselves. You hindered those who were trying to go in. When he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to oppose him fiercely and cross-examine him about many things. They were lying in wait for him to trap him in something he said. Meanwhile, a crowd of many thousands came together so that they were trampling on one another. He began to say to his disciples first, Be on your guard against the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing covered that won't be uncovered, nothing hidden that won't be made known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in an ear in private rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. This is the Word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let us pray. Dear gracious God, we just give you thanks for this opportunity we have once again to come and study your Word, to open your Word, and to dive into it. And so God, I will just pray this morning that you would take our hearts, and that you would, you would make the insides like the outsides, for it's all been made by you. And God, I would just pray in this time that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. So this whole thing starts with an invitation to dinner. There are lots of things in life that start with an invitation to dinner. In less than two months, I'm going to be a daddy. And that started with an invitation to dinner. That was then accepted, and then I had to go get the stuff to make the dinner that I had already told her that I was already making. It was a whole thing. It also involved buying a DVD player. But things start... Good things and bad things start with an invitation to dinner. And this, this whole thing that we had today starts with this invitation to dinner from this Pharisee to Jesus. 
from this Pharisee to Jesus. Now, we have to ask ourselves a question. Who were the Pharisees? And I could spend probably a couple of hours breaking down and parsing and talking about the Pharisees, but that would bore you and probably not what you expected this morning. So just quickly, as we think about the Pharisees, we come across this word a lot. The Pharisees were a group, um, a religious group among the Jews that sort of arose after their return from the exile in Babylon. After the exile, there were a lot of things that sort of had to be worked out questions about how they were going to be faithful followers of God in this world, particularly in a world where, with the exception of a very brief period of time, they were not in charge of their own political destiny. And so there are lots of these sort of sects arose. I want to be very clear, I am saying the word sect, S-E-C-T, sect. The Pharisees were one of these. We, sometimes we see the Sadducees mentioned, not mentioned in Scripture. There was a sect called the Essenes that also existed at this time. And they all had different ways of answering this question, how to be faithful to God. Then the Pharisees, um, sort of be, they become active around 150 B.C., and they, they sort of endure as this distinct and separate party until after the fall of the temple in about 130, 136 or so of um, A.D., in which they sort of get absorbed into what becomes rabbinical Judaism. The sort of Judaism that we know now, which had an even tougher question to ask after the fall of Jerusalem, which was, how are we faithful to God when there is no temple to worship at and no altar upon which to sacrifice? Now, the Pharisees should be noted uh, in, the, in the fact that they, that they sort of were, were known for, for adherence to, to the law, but also that they weren't in favor of working with or collaborating with Rome. They were very sort of anti-Roman. They were very sort of separatist in a lot of ways. And that's how some of their religious rulings and, and this, this adherence, strict adherence to the law sort of comes from. We want to be distinct and separate from the people around us. Now the Pharisees get a bit of a bad rap because of passages like the ones that we read today. But it's important to note that the argument could be made that of all of the groups that were running around in the first century, the, the group that may be the closest to Jesus, in some of the basic core teachings, not how they're lived out, but in terms of the basic teachings are the Pharisees. The Pharisees are, are the group that brought the idea of resurrection into Judaism. That was not a, an idea that existed before the Pharisees. Now, what we know is that there's no fight like a family fight. And sometimes you fight the hardest with those that are closest to you. And so there is this tension between the, the, the community of the Pharisees and this community that, that grows up around Jesus. Of course, we also know that Paul was a Pharisee. So this Pharisee in, invites Jesus, Jesus in. Now, this is, an, this is an indication that there was not always this tension between the Jesus community and the Pharisee community. Because Jesus is invited in to dinner. We also know in John 3, the, the man who shows up in the middle of the night to ask Jesus how he must be born again, Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. And so Jesus responds graciously to this invitation, and he comes in and he reclines at the table, which is 
what he would have done in the time period. But he does so without this ritual washing that the Pharisees participated in. He didn't wash in this particular way. Now, it's important to note, this is an extra-biblical requirement. This is not something that was found in the law. This was something that the Pharisees had added because they wanted to make sure that they removed the defilement that they would have encountered when they had gone out into the world and potentially interacted with the Gentiles or with those who were unclean. And so Jesus comes in and he doesn't participate in this and he sits down. Because, you know, Jesus sort of messes with these categories of clean and unclean, doesn't he? He often is, is interacting with those that are, that are unclean and criticizing those who are deemed by society and culture of being clean. We see that here. And so they are, they're shocked. They're shocked, I tell you, because Jesus has not participated in this practice to prove and show how righteous and holy he is. And Jesus begins, and he sort of lets them have it. He shows, he's showing them, and then he tells them that an internal cleanliness, that an internal morality, that an internal holiness is more important than the external. Then we come to this series of woes. He has three woes that he speaks over the Pharisee. The first is found in 11.42. But woe to you, Pharisees! You give a tenth of mint, rue, and every kind of herb, and you bypass justice and love for God. These things you should have done without neglecting the others. These guys are big on tithing. They're so big on tithing that when they grow their mint plant in their herb garden, they take a tenth of it and dedicate it to the temple. If any one of you have gardens, you can just bring your garden tithe to the house. It'll be fine. But right, it's a little, it's a little ridiculous. They're tithing on, on, on their herbs, but... They don't care about the justice of God. Notice what Jesus says. He doesn't say you care about one and not the other. Jesus says you've got to care about both. You've got to, you've got to care about the justice of God, but you can't neglect your tithe. Then we get to verse 43. Woe to you, Pharisees! You love the front seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. They loved this reputation of being religious. They loved being seen. There's a really funny story in, in Williamsburg. See, there was a requirement in the colonial time period to attend worship at the established church, which was the Church of England, one Sunday in four. And there was a, a woman in Williamsburg who was brought to court because she was not attending worship. And so she was fined, and they said, you need to make sure that you're in worship one Sunday in four from now going forward. And so she, for the rest of her life, every four Sundays, 
would, about five or ten minutes after the worship service had started, enter, walk to the front of the sanctuary, and sit down. She was making a point. She wanted to be seen. We've known people like this in our lives, right? Maybe the folks on Easter Sunday, they've got the, the brand new fancy hat or the wonderful new suit, and they want to be seen, and they, they make sure that you see them. Or the folks who are always present at everything, they want to make sure that you know that they're there. They enjoy the reputation of being religious, but they do it for, for personal acclaim and reputation and not out of a heartfelt desire to follow God. Woe to you Pharisees. You love the front seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. I wish we could get Baptists to love the front seats a little more. And then he gets to the third one. Woe to you. You are like unmarked graves. The people who walk over them don't know it. See, this is interesting. This is one of those things that we can miss this. What, what's this about? What, you're like an unmarked grave and people walk over it and don't know. What is that about? There was this idea, and the Pharisees' idea, there was this idea that if you walked over a grave, that you would defile yourself, that you would make yourself unclean. That's why it's important to mark graves, because you don't want to accidentally defile yourself and then you don't know it. So when Jesus says you're like an unmarked grave and people are walking over it and they don't even know it, what Jesus is saying, you are so dirty that when people encounter you, they are becoming defiled simply by being around you. But they don't even know it. Because on the outside, you look great. But you're defiling people and not even knowing it. There's a very similar parallel passage to this in Matthew 23. And in Matthew 23, the the sort of parallel where Jesus describes the Pharisees in relation to a tomb is this very famous passage, and you probably know it, where he compares the Pharisees to to, to a whitewashed tomb. On the outside, you're bright and you're pretty and you reflect the sunlight, and it looks wonderful. But inside, you are full of death and decay. You're dead on the inside while looking healthy and wholesome on the outside. And then there's this really funny thing where, you know, I don't have siblings, but I have this idea that if you're being yelled at by your parents... If your sibling is being yelled at by your parents, you don't sort of speak up and say, hey, you're yelling at them, but not me. But that's what the the scribes, the, the lawyers, the experts in the law do here, right? Jesus is pronouncing these woes over the Pharisees, and the scribes speak up and say, yeah, well, what about us? We want to we get yelled at too. And so Jesus pronounces these three woes over the Pharisees. Woe to you, excuse me, over the the, the scribes, the lawyers. Woe to you, experts in the law. You load people with burdens that are hard to carry, and yet you yourselves don't touch these burdens with one of your fingers. 
These, these lawyers, they were interpreting the law. They were, they were the ones who were responsible for interpreting the law and, and bringing it to people. And they had made the law a burden on people. Instead of a blessing. Instead of the gift that it was intended to be. The law, when, when Moses brings the law down from God, it's, it's not intended to be a burden. It's intended to be a gift. But, but these experts, these lawyers had added to it, made it a burden. They've expounded on God's law in such a way that it's, instead of helping and inspiring, it hinders and hurts. Here, here's an example. Here's an example of how they had expanded on the law. So we all know that on the Sabbath, you are to not work, you are to rest. So they had, to under, they had to parse and define what work was. So on the Sabbath, they taught that a man could not carry a burden in his right hand or on his left hand or in his bosom or on his shoulder, but he could carry it on the back of his hand or with his foot or with his mouth or with his elbow or his ear or his hair or in his wallet. As long as his wallet was carried mouth downwards... Or they could carry it between their wallet and their shirt or in the hem of his shirt or in his shoe or in his sandal. Does you understand how hard this gets? How ridiculous this gets? They made the law a burden. This thing, this gift from God, they've made it a burden instead of a blessing. And then there's this there's this bit where, where Jesus goes on for a little while. It's the longest of these woes that we get, either to the Pharisees or to the, to the scribes, about the prophets of old and how the, the, the blood of the prophets is going to, be, going to be held responsible to this generation. See, what's happened is, is they've, they've built the tombs to the prophets while keeping them dead. While keeping their... Their teachings dead. They haven't, still haven't heard the words of the prophets. And the final, this final one. Woe to you, experts in the law. You've taken away the key to knowledge. You didn't go in yourselves and you hindered those who were trying to go in. See, not only in their interpretation of the law have they made it a burden, they're also striving to keep knowledge away from people. They've convoluted it so badly. They've muddied the waters so badly that the people can't see the truth. They've made them dependent on the lawyers and the Pharisees. They've, they've blocked the people from having knowledge about God and thus have blocked them from the kingdom. So, Jesus is invited to dinner. He doesn't do this culturally expected thing. The Pharisees get a little shocked by it. And then Jesus says, Woe, woe, woe to you. The Pharisees and the scribes become enraged and Jesus leaves. I can imagine in my head 
I want to be very clear, this is, this is not terribly accurate in my head. But in my head, the way I imagine it is the wife of that Pharisee saying, you couldn't just keep your mouth shut? I worked all day on this dinner. You couldn't keep your mouth shut for five minutes so that we could at least eat? Not a very successful dinner party, huh? But what happens... What does Jesus do? Jesus leaves these religious leaders and he goes back out into the world that they had been so concerned was going to defile them that they had added this extra biblical requirement for washing. Jesus goes back out to the crowds and the crowds are so numerous and so exuberant and so excited to see Jesus that they're literally climbing over each other to get to him. That's where Jesus goes. He leaves the religious leaders and he goes back to the crowd that the religious leaders have shown their contempt and their scorn for. And then Jesus speaks those first words of chapter 12, warning them of the leaven of the Pharisees, of that that little thing that you could get from the Pharisees that would grow and grow and grow hypocrisy. And he reminds them that one day all would be revealed and all would be judged accordingly. That there is nothing and no one that can be hidden or hide from God. We've been talking about bad religion. Bad religion. Bad religion makes rules, outward appearances, elitist theological intellectualism, and social standing more important than the gospel. Rules, outward appearances, elitist theological intellectualism, social standing, it elevates those things over the gospel. Now that is a list that I'm going to guess everybody has got something in that list that they struggle with. For me, I'll just be honest, for me it's that third thing, elitist theological intellectualism. Man, I would be happy if someone would pay me to sit in a room and read big, thick, heavy books and think big, thick, heavy thoughts for the rest of my life. That would be great. It'd be like a dream, right? I know it would be Abby's dream. There's something on that list that's going to be a struggle for each of us. Man, I'll be honest, I'm not a big rule guy. I don't particularly like rules. Just don't. I've, I've never been terribly concerned with outward appearances or with social standing, but man, that, that third thing, that's a, that's a struggle for me. See, bad religion takes what's supposed to be good news and, and makes it burdensome and complex. It takes what's supposed to be, be liberating to be, to be freedom-giving and, and makes it a burden and makes it heavy and, and hard. 
You know, certainly the, the, the fullness of, of Christ and His Word is, is nuanced and, and complex and, and intricately connected and, and profoundly moving. Absolutely. There's a reason that I could sit in a room for the rest of my life and think deep, heavy thoughts because this stuff is, when you really get into it, can be just complex, but with this amazing beauty in the complexity. But here's the thing. The core message of God is simple. The core message of God breaks down to three points, and y'all probably are never going to be able to guess what these three points are because you've never heard this from me before. The three points are love God, love others, and make disciples. Have you ever heard that before? If you, if you are saying you've never heard it before, then I need to say it more often. That's the core message of God. Love God. Love others. Make disciples. Growing in spiritual maturity is a long and continual process, but the path to salvation is short. Growing in spiritual maturity is long and continual process, but the path to salvation is short. It's conviction. Conviction of your sin. It is confession. Confession of your sin to God. It is repentance, which is not the same thing as confession. Repentance is to turn away from your sin and to turn back toward God. And then redemption through Jesus. Conviction, confession, repentance, and redemption. See, Jesus strongly denounces the hypocrisy of the religious elites, not because he thought that they had the ability to be perfect, because Jesus, the the only truly perfect man who's ever walked the earth, knew that they weren't perfect. He knew that as Paul tells us, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He, Jesus knew that we will all fail. No, no. Jesus denounced the hypocrisy of the religious elites because their attempts at self-willed public perfection were keeping people from the truth of the gospel. Self-willed public perfection. That, that instinct that we have in each one of us to just grab the steering wheel and white-knuckle it and say, I'm, I'm strong enough, I can do it on my own. And when we look like that, when we talk like that, when we act like that, we keep people from the truth of the Gospel, which is we can't do it on our own. You know, in, in recent years, we've had just what feels like almost an avalanche of revelations about people who presented themselves publicly as Bible-believing church leaders who were secretly engaged in all kinds of, of abuse. Of, of financial abuse, of spiritual abuse, they were spiritually abusive to the people around them, and, and, even, and even sexual abuse. And then, and then the, the thing that's even hurt even more is that we found out that there were others who, who also professed a call to holiness and faithfulness that, that hid those sins 
from others. The sins that they knew about, that they, they hid them from others, and, and that led to even more harm being able to be done. You know, these are things that, that we can't be silent about. These are things that we have to talk about, that we have to, to own and be honest about. And it's things that we need to, to call out when we see it. We, we must seek to root out all of the death and rot and uncleanliness that rests not only in our hearts, but in can rest in the church as well. There was reporting done a couple of years ago. We talked about it the, the week that it came out in the Houston Chronicle about abuse that had happened in Southern Baptist churches and where abusers had been allowed to continue and continue and continue. And I don't know if I said it then. I hope I did. But if I didn't, let me say it now. Those, that reporter is our friend. The reporters, the, the people who bring these things into the light, they, they are our friends. We should welcome that reporting. Because we can never assume that these things can't happen in the church and we can't address it until it's brought to our attention and we can't afford to pretend to be perfect. I don't know if any of y'all are familiar with the website Reddit. Um, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting place. Um, but the, the basic way that it works, it's basically a huge message board where people converse and share links and all this stuff back and forth. But, but there was a, a conversation on Reddit a while ago, where someone asked this question, what is harder than everyone thinks it is? What's harder than everyone thinks it is? And there were some really great responses. Um, one, which is something that I can't do at all, which was whistling with two fingers. That's a lot harder than I've tried for 37 years to get it down, and I'm not there yet. One, another answer was blowing bubbles with bubble gum. This one was probably my favorite. Popping all of the popcorn in the bag without burning any of it. Which I am pretty sure is like, there's like, like Newton's 32nd law that we haven't discovered yet of physics, which is you can't pop all the popcorn without burning it. Crossing the monkey bars. I don't know if any of you remember. I remember the first time I got across the monkey bars all on my own, the first time without any help. It was an occasion to celebrate. These are things that people do and they make it look, well, except maybe the popcorn thing, they make it look simple. Somebody who really knows how to, how to blow a bubble with a wad of bubble gum, man, they make it look easy. You know, these are all things that, that maybe practice makes perfect on. What happens sometimes is that we, we pretend and we, and we show the world that we've got all the answers. That this, that this Christian walk is easy. We're like, we're like that kid walking down the street blowing the bubble gum 
And when someone says, oh, I mean, I want to do that, and we say, oh, yeah, it's easy here. Just, just take this, and you'll figure it out. But it's not, it's not easy. We shouldn't pretend that we know all the answers to the Christian walk. When, when we pretend that we're perfect, when we pretend that we're perfect, we give a false picture to a watching world. When we pretend that we're perfect, we give a false picture to the watching world that, that following Christ makes everything just dandy, just easy, just simple. Follow Jesus and everything will be all right. You won't have any problems, nothing will happen. But see, this is far from the truth. And we know this. Those of us who, who strive to, to follow Jesus, who strive to grow in Christ-likeness, who strive to be disciples that make disciples, we know that that's far from the truth. We know that life in Christ is challenging. We know it's hard. We know that there, there are weeks like the week I just had that are tough and emotionally exhausting. Weeks where I just want to get in the car and drive around and have a conversation with God that would mainly be me yelling, saying, what are you up to? Why is this happening? See, like the, like the Pharisees, we, we long, because it's, it's in us. It's, it's because we're human beings. We, we long to be lauded for our faithfulness and for our outward awesomeness, for our, our super spirituality. But the truth be told, anyone who has been a believer for more than a day knows that dying to ourselves, knows that picking up our cross, knows that following Jesus is not an easy task. Our, our selfishness, our fleshly desires are not easily tamed. Now, through the Spirit, we, we do find understanding and victory, and through grace, we find hope in confessing our failures and in receiving reconciliation with God. And the great promise is this, we don't have to be perfect to show people the truth of God. And that in fact, hiding our struggles actually minimizes the gospel and our need for a God that is bigger than our sin. You know, everyone likes to feel special. We all want to feel like we're the best in our field, that we're the, the best expert. I mean, even little kids do this, right? Who's the... Who's the, the best speller? Not me. The best cartwheeler? Definitely not me. The best bike rider? Eh, marginal. The best Lego builder? That's my wheelhouse. See, it makes us feel powerful to, to know the most, to be recognized as someone, to be sought after for advice. That's a feeling that we want. Because it makes us feel good. It's a, it's, it's, it's a drug. And I think that perhaps it's, 
It's that, that longing for power that draws us into the hypocrisy that the religious leaders of Jesus' day dealt with, that the religious leaders of Amos and Jeremiah's day deal with, and that we deal with day in and day out. In, in our attempt to control our own story, to present our best, to, to revel in our relative notoriety, we lose sight of the fact that the story isn't about us. It's about God. Hmm. A couple of years ago, Matt Chandler was preaching through the story of David and Goliath. And he said something, and it is just, it's one of those things that sort of just resonated across the internet. He's looking at his congregation. He goes, You aren't David. Brothers and sisters, we are not the center of the story. The story isn't about us. We are but a bit player on the stage of creation, and the main character is God. May we not inadvertently lose sight of Him in our journey to be seen as good. As we end today, just take this Take this with you. The believer should not dilute the message of the gospel by trying to appear perfect to those around them. No, we most clearly glorify God by recognizing our continual need for His work in our lives. If God is the main character, if our job is to glorify Him, the best way we can glorify God is by recognizing our continual need for His work in our life. For His work that starts with this very simple process of conviction, confession, repentance, and redemption but that ends in this lifelong journey to grow in Christlikeness each and every day. Our hymn of invitation this morning is going to be hymn